This podcast is now available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and more. Please leave a written review on whatever app you get this podcast from. Spoiler alert. When this podcast talks about Game of Thrones on HBO, it talks in the context of the most recently aired episode. And when it talks A Song of Ice and Fire books, it talks in the context of the most recently released book by George R. R. Martin. You've been warned. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, you're listening to Matt's audio blog, Game of Thrones. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. And welcome once again to Game of Thrones, Matt's audio blog. I'm Matt Naturally. This will be coming out on July 5th, so for my American listeners, I hope you had a safe 4th of July holiday, and for those of you in the rest of the world, you didn't miss much. A few fireworks, that's about it. Thanks again for listening to me. Just a quick reminder that any music that you hear in this podcast is properly credited in the show notes with links, and please support the artist's that allow me to play their music on this particular podcast. It's very much appreciated. Also, lots to talk about. We're coming up on the end of Season 2. This is the second-to-last episode, the penultimate episode. It's Season 2, Episode 9, Blackwater, written by the author of the source material, George R. R. Martin, and directed by Neil Marshall, his first time directing a Game of Thrones episode, and he did so well with this one, evidently they called him back for another just single location episode later on in season four. We'll talk about that when we get there. But the reminder is that we are coming up on the end of season two, which means your deadline for feedback is fast approaching. July 10th, 2018 is the last day that I will take feedback before I record the next feedback podcast. So be sure to get it into me. Matt's audio blog, M-A-T-T-S audio blog at gmail.com or M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter. Matt's G-O-T blog on Twitter. July 10th, 2018. That's the last day. And I would love to hear your thoughts about season two. If you're re-watching along with me or if you just have some recollections that you want to share. And the whole way that we can build a better community is if more people are submitting their own ideas about the show rather than just sitting back and listening to my own, which, let's face it, for the most part is stuff that you've probably already come up with or have heard somebody else say before. I'm not the most original thinker (laughs) for this show, but uh, I do offer one unique perspective, and that is the music analysis. I don't think anybody else is really doing that too much out there. If you have any thoughts about my musical analysis on the podcast that we've been doing, feel free to submit that in as well. And the way that we can get more people to submit feedback is if we have more people listening. And that's pretty easy to do. You simply go to whatever podcast app that you're using, and if it allows you to, leave a written review. That's what helps me stay more noticeable among the 17 billion other Game of Thrones podcasts that are out there. And if we have more people listening, or at least more people checking us out once in a while, then we may get some more feedback, and that will help make the feedback podcasts even better. What I really want to hear is your thoughts. I want to have one podcast where I get to be lazy and not have to think and just read your thoughts. Well, I'll think about your thoughts. 
and comment on them when appropriate. Most of the time, people come up with such good ideas that all I have to do is read the email or read the tweet, and uh, there's not really a question involved. But if you have a question, again, feel free to submit. Also a reminder, we are now available on YouTube. Not all of the episodes, but starting with the feedback episode from season one up through the current, you should be able to find me on YouTube. That link, as well as the links to all of the podcast apps, are available at mattsaudioblog.com. Again, that's M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. Between Mondays and Thursdays, I rotate between whether I'm going to cover the story of the episode first or the music of the episode first. This time around, since it's a Thursday, we're doing the music first, and we're going to be talking about three thematic motives that occupy pretty much the whole of the score of this episode. Again, Blackwater, Season 2, Episode 9, written by George R. R. Martin, directed by Neil Marshall. Let's talk music next. An analysis of the music in HBO's Game of Thrones. He's a serious man, Stannis Baratheon. And that clip from when Stannis' men are basically first coming onto the beach of King's Landing, and of course, representing Stannis, you would have the Lord of Light theme, this theme right here. And because this episode is so localized, so to speak, there are really only three main themes that you hear throughout the entirety of this episode. There's a little bit of what we call incidental music, which is music which appears once in an episode. And maybe sometime I'll go through and look at incidental music more so than just thematic music when it doesn't seem like there's any kind of new themes to address. But the way these themes were used in this particular episode was really interesting. The three themes that are used in this particular episode are... Of course, the Lord of Light theme, which I just played for you on the piano. We also have the Reigns of Castamere theme, the Lannister theme. And we also have the main theme, because really, this is the ultimate Game of Thrones battle, right? Or at least it's the ultimate Game of Thrones in the course of a battle. And so if you're fighting for the Iron Throne itself, you're kind of fighting about the whole thing. And that's why the main theme comes into such great play in this particular episode. Now, I have talked about all three of these themes pretty extensively in prior episodes, so it's not like I'm going to sit down and analyze exactly what those themes are. You already know them if you've been listening to this podcast and can follow along. If you haven't, feel free to go back and listen to some of the back episodes. You can find all of them at mattsaudioblog.com. There is one concept that is important for you to understand in this particular episode as far as the music goes. The term motive. And it's not that you necessarily need to remember what a motive is or how exactly it works, but what a motive is, I will explain just because it's kind of a musical snippet of stuff, so to speak. It takes a smaller branch of the theme, maybe just one line from the theme, and it sometimes can even just be the rhythm of the theme that appears as the motive. Or sometimes it's just the melody, but it's not in the same rhythm. 
And that's important in this particular episode because what makes all of these themes stand out differently each time they are used in this episode is the way that Ramin Javadi varies the motives within each theme. For instance, right after Stannis begins landing, Tyrion starts giving orders to have the archers start and he sends the hounds men in to fight. And this part of the action is where the battle is really beginning, where men are facing men. And so the main theme motive is played as Tyrion starts to give the orders and as the men march out to fight against Stannis's men. But more importantly than just representing the notes, it's the rhythm that remains the same throughout, and the notes end up getting varied in order to create a sense of not knowing exactly what is going to happen. Because you're so used to that main theme and its motive in a particular way, then when you hear that rhythm, but different notes are played, it does give you a feeling of uncertainty. Let's listen to that clip. Rain fire on them. Archers! That's too many. So there's actually a lot of variation of the notes, but they're all playing the rhythm of the main theme there. So you recognize the rhythm once again, but the changing of the multiple notes shows that it's not clearly defined as to what's going to happen in the battle or with a theme for that matter. And by changing those notes, that ultimately makes the main theme motive sound a lot different. Now, normally it sounds like this. right? But that's not exactly what you heard in this particular clip. The rhythm makes it recognizable, but the notes do not. And so, just like a battle is confusing, you might be a little bit confused about the music, even though that's probably way down on the subconscious level, and you're not even really thinking about that at the time, because you're more worried about who might be getting stabbed or what have you. I don't blame you there. Big battles are fun in an episode, if you're, especially if you're the kind of person that gets into the action of a series. However, it's important that across the board, the action represents the same thing. And that's why this is such a great little trick. The other thing that happens, and you probably heard it right as I was fading, starting to fade things out, he broke into just these single sporadic notes like this. And what that does is it accentuates the violence by leaving spaces in between for you to really think about all of the shouting and try and pay attention to the visuals as everybody clashes into one another and that kind of thing. Um, that actually is a little bit of what we call incidental music, but it was just to capitalize on the fact that now the battle is joined. 
Now, in the next section of the battle, Stannis and his men actually are starting to get to the walls. They're succeeding. So you have another strong version of the Lord of Light theme. And then a slight presentation of the main theme again. But Javadi's done something different here. He's changed the rhythm of the motives, but the melodic notes are the ones that you recognize. So just like you can keep the rhythm, but change the notes, you can also keep the notes, but change the rhythm. Let's listen to that. Could you hear that main theme motive in there? Think of the end at the very end of the theme when you're watching the credits happens. It sounds like this. Except that here he uses a different rhythm. He uses the same notes, but he's playing everything with the same quarter note pulse. And that helps to build the tension. What you heard was this. It's the same notes that we're used to, but by playing one note right after another without that sense of rhythm, it feels like the pace is increasing. And that's the rhythmic trick of sometimes changing things. By taking something that we recognize rhythmically and making them seem faster, again, on a subconscious level, that gets us more excited about what we're seeing. Is Stannis going to get up the wall or what are they going to do? Are they going to the mud gate? Where is the mud gate? And all of that happens because you still feel like you're on familiar ground, but at the same time, something's pushing you to look harder. Now, as Stannis succeeds even further, we start to hear the Lord of Light theme played. This time, the way it is metrically played is different. It's played faster, and it's played stronger right here. Did you hear the difference in the way that the theme was played? The first part, during the first half, 
the Lord of Light theme seemed twice as quick. But then at the end, as they try to start to breach the Mudgate, the Mudgate's super strong and it's slowing their progress. So it goes to being half as fast. And that gives you this kind of butting your head up against the wall kind of feeling in a way. But more importantly than that, it just shows how Stannis' progress was rushing, 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 and now it's been slowed down a little bit. And again, this is the way it's done in the meter. In the first part of the theme, the notes are played half as long as they normally are. And in the second part of it, they're played a little longer than they normally are. And that's because he changes to three-quarter time. And that's not anything you need to necessarily know. It just makes the notes seem longer. That's all you really need to know. But this is where the tide kind of turns in terms of the course of the battle. Because the Hound is now left, and Tyrion's left to lead the attack on his own. And really up until this point, we've been talking about the Lord of Light theme and the Game of Thrones theme. But... We haven't really talked about the Reigns of Castamere, and it doesn't really start to make an appearance until well into the episode, especially right here where Tyrion tries to inspire his men by giving the speech. You start to hear the Reigns of Castamere come out. And don't fight for his kingdoms. Don't fight for honor. Don't fight for glory. Don't fight for rich. Now, if you haven't heard the last episode covering Prince of Winterfell, I covered the Reigns of Castamere theme in that particular episode. But just as a reminder, here's what the theme sounds like. And it's a very emotional version. It's very good for backing Tyrion trying to inspire the men. It comes on very strong and, and the way that we're used to hearing the Reigns of Castamere theme being strong, a little scary because it's in a minor key. The interesting thing is, is that one of the most poignant versions of this theme is near the end because you have Tywin's men come in and save the day as Tyrion is getting injured by the Kingsguard. But Cersei doesn't know this yet. And she's just about to give up all hope and use that poison that Pycelle gave her, at least on Tommen and probably on herself shortly after. And it produces the melody of the Reigns theme, but the harmony is different. The harmony, rather than having this strong, minor, scary, stable chords lasting a long time, uh, goes through several changes of chords and in a descending fashion. What I mean by descending is the harmony continues to climb down lower. 
not in a way of like an elevator going up or down, but it, what it does is it does give you a sinking feeling because the lowest note is continually going lower as it goes along. And that tends to make a person feel like energy is getting sucked out of them. It also tends to make you feel a little more sad because, you know, there's nothing more fun than when you're a little kid than somebody tossing you up in the air. And when you're coming down, that's the scary part and, and the sad part when it's over and you're back in your, say, your father or your mother's hands after they've caught you. I mean, you had a great thrill of exhilaration, but after you come down, it's not quite the same anymore. Maybe that's a bad analogy because I know that uh, when I was a kid, uh, when dad used to throw me up in the air, I was just pretty terrified the whole time. Anyway, uh, a descending feeling, a descending harmony will often give us a feeling of the winds getting taken out of our sails. But what happens is then, after you get this really emotional version, you also get the restatement of the Game of Thrones theme as Tywin comes in and says, we won the battle, blah, blah, blah. Well, you get the main theme and it's played in its proper way because things have been restored back to the way they were. Cersei is still there. Tommen is not dead. The Baratheon throne is still in power. We're at our usual state. And so the main theme being played in its usual state where it hasn't been played in that way anywhere throughout the episode up until this point, psychologically tells us that all is back to normal. So, there's no reason to analyze that any further. I'm just going to leave you with that clip, and we will start talking about the story side of this episode next. Season 2, Episode 9, Blackwater, written by George R. R. Martin, directed by Neil Marshall. All the stags will bow, all the wolves will bow. The bears in the north and the foxes of the south. battle is over. We have won. <laughs> All right, Blackwater. And for those of you who are brand new to the podcast, I do break things down into sections. I do a little bit of what I consider to be a surface talk, things that are probably superficial, usually only mostly to me. 
um, then uh, I try to find three big things in an episode that have lasting ramifications. And then uh, I have questions. And then I have uh, just little odds and ends that I call tidbits. But I have to tell you that on this particular episode, there isn't near as much that comes out of this episode as a rewatch as you might think or as certainly as I thought there would be. What happens to Tyrion and Stannis is known by the finale. You have the question about Davos, but that's quickly answered in season three. And in the long run, Stannis attacking King's Landing has little effect on his storyline. I mean, it's his one shot, I suppose, at, at being a significant piece in the story other than saving the Night's Watch from the Wildlings. I mean, those are really the only two things that Stannis accomplishes in his run. There's no character development for Stannis whatsoever in this particular episode. And there's very few questions. Maybe some what ifs if you wanted to do that. But there's not a whole lot to this episode that can't be resolved within this single episode. That's not to say that it is not impactful to watch, especially from an emotional standpoint. And not just because of the writing. I know everybody says, oh, it's a George R. R. Martin episode. And I, believe me, I'm a, I'm a book lover too. But, you know, when we read the books, we get the perfect take of what we're reading in our mind's eye. Whoever we picture these characters to look like, whatever we picture them doing as they're saying their lines or as they're thinking their thoughts. I mean, we get it exactly as our mind perceives it at that moment. All of this stuff has to be interpreted for television. And that's where the real excellence in the execution of emotion, of impact happens in this particular episode. George's writing is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not slamming the writing at all. I just think that the scene between, say, like Sansa and the Hound doesn't work unless Sophie Turner and Rory McCann do it properly. The scene with Cersei and Tommen doesn't work unless Lena Headey gives a great performance. And so it takes good writing for the actors to aspire to, but it takes the actors and the direction to make it all become as impactful to you as, say, it might in your mind's eye when you're reading the books. And there are some really emotional things in here. One, one thing that always gets me is Sansa when she returns back to her room and sees the doll that Ned had given her, that she had basically made fun of when he first gave it to her because she was all depressed, and how much that means to her, and just, just the look on Sansa's face that just makes me nearly cry every single time because it, it's just encapsulating so much loss for Sansa and I think guilt on her part. So to say that Sansa is some kind of selfish person, maybe she was to a certain degree out of her youth. She was definitely selfish, but here she becomes a person who understands the weight of what her actions have done to her own family, and to the hell that she is in 
now. The same way with Cersei in the throne room with Tommen, there's a desperation there. There's nothing left for her to do. They're about to be taken over as far as Cersei knows. She doesn't know the tide of the battle has changed. She sealed herself off from everybody else, and she's going to make sure that her and Tommen do not suffer cruel deaths, that it'll be death on her terms. And that's just so incredibly impactful. The way the fire affects the hound, that was impactful. So there's a lot of things emotionally impactful in this episode, but they don't really go beyond the scope of the episode. That's what the surface part is for. And as far as my three big things, well, my three big things are going to be three characters and not necessarily three big things that last throughout the course of the series, but just three big characters within this episode with some ramifications. They're all tied together by Sansa. Sansa's the only one who talks to all three of these characters. But let's get on to my three big things right here. Three three big things. Cersei is the first character that I want to talk about here. And she spends a lot of time with Sansa dispensing advice. And the big thing, of course, is what I talked about on the emotional side of it, which is the fact that she was willing to take her own life and Tommen's life in order to keep them from suffering. Now, this isn't just for herself. Note that she's giving Tommen the poison first, but you have to assume that she was going to take some more of it. If you only need 10 drops, as Pycelle says, to kill you, then she won't have to give Tommen very much, and she has enough for herself. Would she have gone and seeked Joffrey out and done the same before she did herself? I'm not certain. It seemed like she was pretty much alone with Tommen. Of course, Marcella is in Dorne. There's nothing she can do about that. And Joffrey has become somewhat horrible. She's admitted that to Tyrion already in a lot of ways. Uh, and Asanza in a lot of ways. She understands that Joffrey is beyond her control in a lot of ways, and she's just kind of let go of that. I guess she figured that he can either fend for himself or whatever, but that seems in itself a little bit uncharacteristic of this mother who would do anything for her children. However, the act of making sure that they don't suffer, is that a mother's love or not? Maybe that should have been a question for my question section, but I feel like it's one of the most impactful questions to ask because any other time she's fiercely fighting for the lives of her children, but here she's not trying to get them to escape. She's not doing anything like that. She has resigned. And maybe it's the fact that it is Stannis, as she tells Sansa, you know, if it was anybody but Stannis, I would have a chance of maybe at least getting my children to live or getting myself to live or finding some kind of solution that would not end up with all of our heads on spikes. But because it is Stannis and she knows how cut bone and dry is, which by the way, that's about the biggest character development that Stannis gets. You couple that with the line of somebody says hundreds will die and he says thousands because he just tells it like it is. That's about as big a character development as you get and it's nothing you don't already know about Stannis. Anyway, I digress. Cersei knows that she has no chance with Stannis. Now, if 
Varys has told her the same stories about the Red Priestess as he told Tyrion. I mean, what a horrific death to be burned alive. She's not going to let her children suffer that. Except she may be willing to let Joffrey suffer that, but she's certainly not going to let Tommen suffer that. And that's where there may be just a little bit of conflict about this whole mother doing the thing that's best for her children, maybe. If she had done everything to try and protect her children, you would think she would have tried to get them out of the city. Now, she may not be privy to the tunnels that Varys gave the map to Tyrion about. Um, So maybe she doesn't know that there's ways out. I'm pretty certain that she probably doesn't, or she wouldn't have acted so rashly. But she already has this in her back pocket before the battle even starts. Remember, all that stuff with Pycelle happens at the beginning of the episode. If you're a mother, what do you do? I mean, I don't have any children, so I can't fathom what that kind of decision would have to be like. And I really probably have no right to even comment on it one way or the other, but if you're a parent, what would you do in that kind of situation? I think I'll just throw the question section out the window and ask them as I go, because that one seems important. Another one that seems important to me now, just thinking about it, and this isn't in my notes, but all of this advice that Cersei has been giving Sansa, does it stem from the fact that she wants to help Sansa in a certain way become a better woman? Or does it really extend from the fact that most of her great quote-unquote advice has come after the fact that Marcella is gone? She has no daughter with which to share anything. And so a woman sharing a woman's knowledge to a younger woman may have taken on a different meaning to her as far as Sansa goes. I don't think she's trying to really get her under her wing and and mentor her in a certain way, but she doesn't have Marcella with whom to share with. She doesn't think she's ever going to have Marcella to share this with. And as this battle continues to go on throughout the course of the episode, she continues to find little bits of advice about what the real world is like to Sansa, partially to scare her, guaranteed. I mean, there's a mean streak in this. Don't get me wrong. It's the same kind of mean streak as when she was talking about Rob with Tom and and Marcella at the beginning of the season. She enjoys scaring Sansa because Sansa to her is so perfect as she even says in this particular episode. As the wine gets to her, you almost find a sense of jealousy that Cersei has for Sansa. And yet at the same time, you have to think that there's a bit of sympathy as well, because she knows what kind of person her son is, and she knows that Sansa is going to do nothing but suffer that if they happen to survive at all. But there are some really interesting moments in there in the Cersei character Things that, I don't know, I guess you would say that this is a battle. You know, it's not like Cersei's been under siege before and in a battle before. She spent most of her time in King's Landing in a time of peace. It wasn't until John Aaron made his discovery that things became much more precarious 
for Cersei regarding her children. For the first time, this prophecy is starting to look like it might actually happen, and she has to do everything she can to prevent it. But now she's at the end of the rope. She's never been in a battle before, and if they lose it, she knows they're all going to die, and she wants to control how they're going to die, or at least how her and Tommen are going to die, because at least that way she went out on her terms and prophecy be damned. So Cersei is my first subject, my second subject, Tyrion. And look, there's all kinds of really neat things happening in this episode. Tyrion shows a degree of heroism that he always felt like he had, but he only exhibited mainly when he had the upper hand. He had the upper hand with Catelyn and Lysa. He has the upper hand with Joffrey most often. And Bronn works for him, so he doesn't have to worry about that. He's eliminated most of his enemies as far as within the council goes. But here, he has to come outside of his normal range of heroism. He did manage to fend off one of the hill tribesmen with a shield for Catelyn to help save her. But that was an isolated incident. And you get the feeling that Tyrion's never really been that much for battle. He's never been thought of that way. In fact, he told Varys that fixing sewers was more his kind of thing. And I love that speech that he gives to the men because he finds the thing that resonates with them, which does make him a good leader in a lot of ways. You know, you can go and look at season seven and say, man, he's just not that great of a strategist. But here, his strategy, it ultimately failed just out of sheer numbers, but it did buy enough time for Tywin to get there with the greater numbers. If Tyrion isn't holding the mudgate, Tywin doesn't arrive in time. I mean, sure, maybe he still beats Stannis, but there ain't nobody left to save. And that can't be discounted. The whole bit with the wildfire, how horrific that was, and, and even seeing that horror on everybody's face from the Lannister side, it's not like they are all cheering or anything. They're all going, oh my God, what have we done? And I suppose that's one thing you can bring up is that uh, Cersei probably saw how effective that was, or at least was told. And, of course, she probably wants to take credit for part of that, for coming up with the whole wildfire idea. But she finds a, a way to use it on a personal level, whereas Tyrion here is just using it on a very impersonal battle level. These people want to kill you, and that's the only way we can stop you. Whereas with Cersei and the Tyrells, it's making sure that a family doesn't bug you anymore. Oh, and a high septon too, or a high sparrow, I guess I should say. And be damned the collateral damage. Here Tyrion made sure that his fleet was not anywhere around when that happened. He sent a lone ship out there that wasn't even manned, and he did the deed. The collateral damage was zero, other than a ship itself, the wood of a ship. But that was the easy stroke, right? That was the one that just kind of set Stannis back for a minute. And then Stannis, of course, came forward with the men that he had, which was still 
evidently outnumbering the gold cloaks and what have you, because Tywin had his whole army elsewhere. And until he came in with his overwhelming numbers, there was no chance for Tyrion except to delay until Tywin got there. And naturally, he didn't know Tywin was going to get there, but it was the only plan that he had. And you find that admirable in this particular character. He also, as I mentioned, talks to Sansa, albeit briefly, when Sansa has been sent to say goodbye to King Joffrey before he goes out to battle. And and that's one of the things that I really liked in this episode was the fact that Sansa was very clever with her words. I wish for you the same fate as I do my King Joffrey. So not a whole lot of gratitude there from Sansa in terms of Tyrion saving her from Joffrey before. But I mean, what are you going to say? Right? I mean, Sansa was hoping the whole Lannister family goes down and that's why she runs to her room and tells the hound she doesn't need to go right is because she thinks Stannis is going to win and she might have a chance in that way little be known I think as you look at Stannis's character Sansa wouldn't even have had that much of a chance with him either she'd have very least been held hostage because Rob was in open rebellion of the Iron Throne And to Stannis, everybody was a usurper. But again, I'm going off on Stannis, and really all Stannis is in this particular episode is a a stick figure on an animatic swinging a sword. You can say there's bravery in that, but, I mean, Stannis is pragmatic. He knows the only way he's going to get to the Iron Throne is to kick some butt. Back to Tyrion. You do see a level of trust that Tyrion has in Braun in this particular episode because, well, he trusts Braun to be the guy to shoot the arrow to start the wildfire. And his disdain for the hound for wanting to leave is pretty evident as well. And that brings me to my third big thing, which is the hound. In a way, while it's clearly stated in this episode and in a prior episode that the Hound likes killing, I almost feel a little cheated in a way because to me in the books, the Hound is that character, right? I mean, he absolutely is that character. And he has this ferocity about him that is very intimidating in a lot of ways. But then... It almost feels like for TV purposes that it was all set up just so you could get the payoff with the Sansa scene where he says, no, I won't hurt you, little bird. Nonetheless, the Hound's journey, when you think about the way that he helps Sansa out for most of this season, offers to give her a chance to go away with him, in which case... Who knows if he ever would have actually run into Arya or not. Maybe he would have. Maybe he wouldn't have. Maybe he'd have them both to try and sell to the Starks at the Red Wedding. And maybe he'd have been stuck with them, sending them over to Lysa. And maybe the same result would have happened. And then Arya and Sansa both would have been sent somewhere else. Like, say, the Boltons, where no good would come to either of them. I don't know if Arya, if she hadn't escaped to Bravos, if she'd still be alive right now. Anyway, back to the Hound. 
this fear of fire that he has was way bigger in proportion than I had anticipated when I watched this for the first time. We knew the story about his brother shoving his face in the coals, blah, 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 from season one with Littlefinger. But the fact that the fire affected him so deeply, everything from before they even go out there, he's telling the guys shooting arrows, you better not shoot any at me or I'll come back and kill you. And the horror of that really makes you start to sympathize with him, especially when he's, you know, basically flipping off the king in a verbal way when he decides to leave. The only problem with that is, is that it's Tyrion's butt that gets hung out to dry with that Tyrion getting hurt badly and all, of course. And so the Hound's actions always end up with fairly bad results, if you look at it. He protected Sansa up to this point. That was good, but Sansa didn't do anything about it. That was bad. He grabbed Arya up and then continued to help her as they made their way to Lysa's, or at least protect her as they made their way to Lysa's, and he ends up getting thrown off a cliff by Brienne. That's bad. And on top of that, Arya ends up going to Bravos and becoming a cold-blooded killer. That's bad as well. And so you have to wonder, after he's had time to sit with this Septon dude or whatever the guy was in season six when we first found out that the Hound was still alive, how much of that has he all thought about? And I suppose that Braun doesn't even cross his mind anymore after they go through this battle together because... He ends up back in King's Landing in season seven and doesn't mention it. Bronn doesn't mention it. Nobody mentions the fact that they were about to kill each other until the battle bell started ringing. Of course, for the Hound, that's a sign of change rather than looking at Bronn the way that he was looking at Bronn here. If he's looking at Bronn at all, rather than just trying to keep his eyes on the on the white that they have, he at least uh, has gotten to a position where that's not the most important thing for him. And that makes me wonder where the Hound is in terms of his mental state as we go into Season 8 and what might happen if him and Sansa were to meet. Would the Hound even recognize Sansa? Which brings me to this particular question. Questions. Questions. Some of the things that Sansa has learned from Cersei is just how to be a colder person. And Sansa has become more pragmatic. Think about how she told John very blatantly and correctly that Rickon was already dead. Now, that obviously seems cold, and Sansa haters will use that as fuel to say, see, Sansa's evil. No, nobody's going to say that, right? Nobody's going to say Sansa's evil. They're just going to say Sansa's boring, or Sansa's wrong. That's what we hear most about Sansa. But she was right. And I wonder if the Hound would like this less kinder, less gentler Sansa, as opposed to the old Sansa. Did he look at her as an innocent? Is that why he wanted to be with her, as he told Arya on what he thought was his dying day? I guess another question you could ask is, 
the what if, and that is if Melisandre had been allowed to come along, if Stannis's fires were already burning low, as she says in season three from the first Shadow Baby, could she have affected the battle in some other way with some other kind of spell or with a Shadow Baby that might have possibly killed Stannis in the process? I don't know, but just ponder the question for yourself, I suppose, or you can share it with me. Send an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com or tweet Matt's G-O-T blog, M-A-T-T-S-G-O-T blog on Twitter. Do you think that the outcome would of this battle would have been different if Melisandre had been along? Is that what we're supposed to think? And does the magic just have a plan? And really, that's all that I have for this episode. As I said, uh, I was hoping to dig a whole lot out of it from a rewatch perspective, but I really just didn't get that much out of it. Not that I didn't enjoy the episode. I totally enjoyed the episode. I went with every swing, every punch, every word. It was incredible episode to watch and, and well done on all fronts, writing, directing, acting. Um, it, to me, it's still one of my favorite episodes of the whole series, but it's not something that you can gleam a whole lot from on a rewatch. So before we let you go, we've got two more little segments to do three words and brothel mates of the episode. Three words is describing the episode in three words. Brothel mates is finding the best coupling of the episode. Three words is coming up next. Three words describing the episode in three words. Three little words. Oh, what I'd give for that wonderful phrase. To hear those three little words. So, three words. Trying to describe the episode in three words. And it doesn't have to be a summary of the episode. It doesn't have to be anything except what you want it to be, your three words to be. It can be about a particular scene. It can be about a particular character. Just as long as it coincides with something that happens in this episode. It can even be your feelings about a particular episode, which is what my three words are this time. And please, again, don't take this the wrong way. I love this episode, but my three words are a rewatch disappointment because I was just hoping to gleam a whole bunch of little things out of this and my memory of this episode had gotten so inflated that I was disappointed when I found that there was nothing really on a rewatch perspective to really look at. Now, maybe you think I'm wrong. Maybe I missed something. You should send me feedback regarding that or send me your own three words proving me wrong about this particular episode. Send your emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com or you can tweet at Matt's G-O-T blog, same spelling of Matt's G-O-T blog on the Twitter and let me know what you thought about this particular episode. I've mentioned this before. Sometimes my expectations make me seem like I'm not as enthusiastic about an episode or something like that. That's why I try to avoid predictions. It's because I feel like when I make a prediction, then I'm placing some kind of expectation on an episode that shouldn't be there. And that's not what most normal people do. I'm not most normal people. And so uh, my expectations do sometimes get in the way of me 
uh, being able to gleam stuff out of an episode. I particularly didn't find anything rewatch mentionable about this episode, but I still loved it. Isn't that weird? I would watch it again right now, just not with the idea that I was going to have to do a podcast from a rewatch perspective on it. But that's just me. Let me know what your three words would be. You have until July 10th, 2018 to get them into me before the next feedback podcast comes out. I'll be recording that on July 11th. Don't send your stuff in on July 11th. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. You send it in to me July 10th. I have to organize stuff, you know, because I have to pigeonhole things because that's what I do with podcasts. Podcasts are about the only thing that I'm truly OCD about. But I do have to have things in order before I can start to process how to accomplish them as far as a podcast goes. So don't let me down. Get yours in by July 10th, 2018. And with that, we have the best coupling of the episode coming up next. That's what we call the brothel mates of the episode. Mates of the episode, the best couplings of the episode. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore can love. Not sure if you could hear it or not, but uh, there's quite a bit of thunder rumbling here. So if that makes its way onto the podcast, don't worry. The house isn't breaking apart or anything like that. It's just thunder in the background. It's not like I record in a soundproof studio or anything like that. Anyway, Brothelmates of the episode is what we're talking now. That is the best coupling of the episode. Again, it doesn't have to be two people. It doesn't have to be a person and a concept. It doesn't have to be anything except the coupling that you want it to be. And I hope that you will submit yours for every episode of Season 2 by July 10th, 2018 by sending an email to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. There's some thunder. Or by tweeting at mattsgotblog on Twitter. My brothel mates for this episode are two people, in fact. And it's Cersei and Sansa. Because I honestly do believe that Cersei has had an effect on Sansa. Not necessarily in the good ways all the time, but uh, I still feel like she did have an impact on Sansa with some of these things that she continued to say. And the only way Sansa really escaped becoming a totally closed-off person the same way that... The more thunder... uh, Is the fact that Marjorie comes into play. And so Cersei has to worry about that rather than worrying about Sansa. Sansa's just kind of discarded by the end of the next episode and uh, left for Tyrion to marry, of course. But that's my brothel mates for this episode. Who were your brothel mates for this episode? Was it uh, the Kingsguard who Podrick killed and Podrick's spear? 
might have been that. Maybe that was your favorite coupling of the episode. Or maybe it was Tyrion and the Pyromancer. Or the Pyromancer and Wildfire. Or the Pyromancer and his giggle at the Wildfire. Either way, whatever your brothel mates for this particular episode were, please feel free to send them to me. And I'll be back with some closing thoughts here in just a moment. Thanks for joining me once again. Hopefully you enjoyed the podcast. If you didn't, let me know. You can send me an email. You can tweet me. I've already said those addresses enough. You don't need to hear them again. Or you can leave it in a written review on a podcast app. Hint, 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 hint. That's the only way we're going to get more people to participate in the feedback episodes is if more people are listening. And the only way more people are listening is if you leave a written review. You're the one out there listening right now. You're hearing my voice. The responsibility is yours and yours alone. Don't let me down. Or do. I mean, it's totally up to you, right? Uh, How am I going to know who's listening to this and who's not? I'm really not. Unless I catch you listening to my podcast and don't see that you've left a written review, then I will call you out. But not on a podcast, just personally. Nah, not even that. We've got one episode of Game of Thrones left for season two, and I need your feedback by July 10th, 2018, in order to be included in our feedback podcast. Not July 11th. July 10th is the last day. Make it midnight, July 10th, wherever you are in the world. So you only have until midnight, July 10th. That would be the beginning of July 10th, not the end of July 10th. If you live in Moscow, then midnight is the time in Moscow. If you live in Honolulu, then midnight is the time in Honolulu. And I have talked enough and you're tired of hearing me beg you for feedback and for written reviews. Uh, One more thing to beg, please do check out the show notes for the listing of any music that is played in this podcast. It is very helpful if you at least acknowledge who it is. You don't have to buy their stuff. You just have to acknowledge who they are. And nobody's going to know but you. So you're on the honor system. Bye-bye.